What a joy it is to be together as a church family. We're here to give you all the praise and the glory and the honor that belongs to you. Father, I ask for your indwelling presence within me. I need you desperately. I pray that you would fill me, that you would strengthen me. I pray that you would open the ears of all who are here, that they might hear from you. This might be an opportunity, Father, to hear what you have to say to us through your word and an opportunity to apply it to our lives, to become more like Jesus Christ. Father, bless this time together. It's all for your glory and for your honor and for your praise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, has long been hailed as the sum of Jesus' ethical teaching. In this absolutely magnificent chunk of Scripture, Jesus essentially tells us how we are to live our lives. And the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is known as the Beatitudes, which literally means the blessings, but which could also be understood as giving believers their B, separate word now, attitudes, that is, the attitudes they should be living out as well as be growing in and thus be blessed by. And it's those Beatitudes, of which there are eight, that I'm going to consider with you during my teaching time this summer because, quite frankly, I can't think of anything more encouraging and profitable for us in these very weird and uncertain days of the COVID pandemic and of the civil unrest our state and nation are experiencing than to dig in and discover how we can experience the blessings of God through right living. So with that, I'm going to ask you, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Put your finger on verse 1, and we're going to read the first three verses together. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now to get at what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we need to ask and answer three questions. Question number one, what is the full meaning of the word blessed? Now, I realize on the surface it seems quite straightforward, but I think it's worth our attempt to dig a little deeper and find out what the full scope of meaning of that word is. Second question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is not a common 21st century phrase. In the almost 30 years that I've been married to my wife Susie, we have never had a conversation that went something like this. Susie, you appear to be poor in spirit today. Or, Dan, are you poor in spirit? It's never happened. I don't know if it's happened in your household, but it's never happened in ours. So I think we need to find out what that means, what it means to be poor in spirit. Last question, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven? Once we've answered those questions, we've come to a good understanding of what Jesus was saying here, 
we can then consider how we might apply it to our lives. So let's begin with the first question, and that is, what is the full meaning of the word blessed? And this is really critical when you think about it, because every single beatitude starts with blessed are. So if we don't get this right up front, this is going to be a long summer. So I want to make sure that we understand right up front what exactly this word means. The original Greek word that's translated as blessed or blessed, however you want to pronounce it, is the word makarios, which in the simplest sense means happy, but not, as Bible scholar David Guzik points out, happy in our modern sense of merely being comfortable or entertained in the moment. So in other words, we're not talking about a a kind of glib or superficial and temporary sort of giddiness here when using this word. Rather, the word means joyful, again, Guzik, and I quote, in the truest godly sense of the word. Furthermore, this word makarios conveys the idea of being privileged due to divine favor. And in that sense, according to the Greek expert William Mounts, it takes the form of a pronouncement, and I'm quoting Mounts now. That is, though the present situation of those facing trials is difficult, they are encouraged by the prospect of future consolation and reward from God, and thus are able to face the present with courage and hope, end quote. All of that said, to say that blessed here, that is in the Beatitudes, means deeply happy and hopeful and contented, adding, it is well with my soul, level are the fill in the blank, which we'll do eight times this summer, today with the phrase poor in spirit, because that person is right with God, and he or she knows that there's not only present peace and joy, but also future comfort and reward for being right with God. Got it? Do you feel comfortable with what the word makarios means? We have to make sure that we're really good with that. It means a very deep, rich, godly sort of, and I like the word best here, joy. So hang on to that. Put it in your back pocket. We're going to move on. Let's consider the second question, that is, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? As I mentioned earlier, this is not a phrase we tend to toss around on a daily basis. So you may be asking, don't you love it when preachers put words in your mouth? You may be asking, does it mean to be financially poor? No, I don't believe it means to be financially poor, even though one might be tempted to think that based on Luke's rather abbreviated version of this beatitude. And I think it's worth us taking a look. So would you turn in your Bibles, two books to your right, find Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. Everybody there? Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Look at what Luke says. He says, blessed are you who are poor, and notice what's missing there. The rest of that phrase, right, of spirit is not there. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, based on Luke's passage, one might be very tempted to think that to be poor in spirit means to be lacking financially or to be poor financially. However, Matthew's inclusion of the phrase in spirit, remember we always use the Bible to interpret the Bible, as well as the larger context of Luke's passage, 
And remember that we always read the Bible in context, right? Those two things strongly support a broader and deeper meaning here. So I don't think to be poor in spirit means to be financially poor. Well then, again, you may be asking, does it mean to be, let's say, poor-spirited? Which, according to the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, means to be lacking zest, confidence, or courage. No, it does not mean that. Certainly the one who said to his father, followers things like this, do not fear, only believe from Mark 5, 36. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me from Luke 9, 23. And in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world from John 16, 33. Certainly the one who said those things to his disciples and many more like them certainly did not also say to them, blessed are you who lack zest, confidence, and or courage. Blessed are you who are complacent, apathetic, fearful, and without spiritual fortitude. Of course not. So to be poor in spirit most definitely does not mean to be poor spirited. So, and this I'm sure you're saying, get on with it, Pastor Dan. Quit telling us what it doesn't mean and tell us what it does mean. All right, fair enough. I think we can best get at the meaning of this word by substituting that word spirit, which is a translation of the Greek word pneuma, a word that means the vital principle by which the body is animated, the rational spirit, the power by which the human being feels, thinks, and decides, or put more simply, it's what makes us us by substituting the word spirit based on that understanding of the original Greek word pneuma, with the word self. Fair enough? So to be poor in spirit is the same thing as being poor in self. In other words, to be poor in spirit simply means to be humble as opposed to proud. It means to be self-renouncing as opposed to self-reliant, a sentiment, sentiment that I think is captured better in some of the more contemporary translations. The Amplified Bible, for instance, after saying exactly the same thing as the ESV says, blessed are the poor in spirit, adds these words in parentheses, the humble who rate themselves insignificant. Or the contemporary English version puts it this way, God blesses those people who depend only on him. Or my favorite, the message, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. I like simple things. So in practical terms, then, poor in spirit is the tax collector beating his chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, from Luke 18, 13. It's the Canaanite woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter, equating herself with the dogs who eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, Matthew 15, 27. It's Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, not as I will, but as you will, Matthew 26, 39. And it's us. It's us, the people of God, singing with all of our hearts. I need thee every hour. All right, so we, we now know what is meant by the word blessed or blessed. It means to be richly and deeply happy and peaceful and contented in the Lord in the present and hopeful of even more of the same in the future. And now we know what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to be humble and self-renouncing, self rather, as opposed to proud and self-reliant. All that's left is for us to find out exactly what the kingdom of heaven is. 
To get at that point, I need to briefly explain the implication of the two main words in that phrase, kingdom and heaven. And just for the fun of it, I'm going to start with the last one first. I'm going to talk about heaven, and then we'll talk about the word kingdom. The word heaven here is synonymous with the word God and is, in fact, what Matthew meant here. And if you notice, it's exactly what Luke said. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But you see, because Matthew was writing primarily to Jews who were very reluctant to use the name God so as not to be guilty of taking God's name in vain, he used the word heaven instead. Heaven being the name of the place where God resides and effectively meaning God himself. So heaven is synonymous with God. The other word, the word kingdom, written at a time when a ruler had absolute power and authority over his subjects was a reference to the reality and the exercise of that ruler's absolute power and authority. So putting those two words together in the phrase kingdom of heaven simply means the authoritative rule of God in the lives of his people. We've answered all three questions. With those answers taken into account, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what I believe he meant was this, and this effectively becomes my humble attempt at paraphrasing this verse. Deeply happy and peaceful and contented, it is well with my soul, are those who are empty of self. Why? Because they are the ones whom God can then indwell completely and whom he can rule absolutely. Let me say it again, deeply happy and peaceful and contented. It is well with my soul are those who are empty of self because they're the ones with self out of the way whom God can now indwell completely and whom he can rule absolutely. I think Peterson probably captured it best in the message where after writing, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, he wrote this, with less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Let me put it to you in these terms. As Pastor Jim pointed out last week, in every life there's a throne and there's a cross. As long as self is on that throne, Jesus, in a sense now, this is an analogy, so bear with me, Jesus, in a sense, remains on the cross in that person's life. But when we abdicate the throne for the cross, Jesus can then truly take his rightful place on the throne of our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we can see very clearly why that is such a blessed state of being when we consider its positive impact on three areas of our lives. First of all, on our perspective about ourselves. Second of all, in our posture towards others or how we live our lives around other people. And lastly and most importantly, on our position before God. Let's begin by considering how abdicating the throne for the cross so that God can sit on the throne of our lives how that positively impacts our perspective about ourselves. And I'd like to start doing that by sharing with you Aesop's fable of the frog and the ox. Oh, Father, said the little frog to the big one sitting on the side of the pool, I have seen such a terrible monster. It was as big as a mountain with horns on its head and a long tail, and it had hooves divided in two. Oh, hush, child, hush, said the old frog. That was only Farmer White's ox. It isn't so big either. 
He may be a little bit taller than I, but I could easily make myself quite as broad as, as he is. Just you see. So he blew himself out, and he blew himself out, and he blew himself out. Was he as big as that, asked the old frog. Oh, much bigger than that, said the young frog. Again, the old one blew himself out and asked the young one if the ox was as big as, as that. Bigger, father, bigger, was the reply. So the frog, the old frog, took a deep breath, and he blew, and he blew, and he blew, and he swelled, and he swelled, and he swelled. Then he said, I'm sure the ox is not as big as... But then he burst. It's disgusting, I know, but that's how the fable goes. But it has a moral, and it's this. Self-conceit may lead to self-destruction. Self-conceit or self-centeredness is an overemphasis on self that demands that everyone attach to us the same importance that we attach to ourselves. And those who are afflicted with it see the world as a mirror. Wherever they look, they see themselves. And they suppose that all of life is about what happens to them and how they feel about it. They have an unquenchable desire for the admiration and the esteem of others. As long as they have the approval of others, they're happy. As soon as they don't have that approval, they're not happy. And living life like that is imprisoning. It's absolutely miserable. And it's the very reason why an anonymous former model once said, the happiest day of my life was the day I stopped trying to be pretty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have been released from the bondage and the misery of self-centeredness and self-servitude. All right, let's consider next how abdicating the throne for the cross positively impacts our posture around other people. Self-centered people not only make life miserable for themselves, they make it miserable for everyone else around them. They're the ones, according to an old radio pastor by the name of Dr. Ralph Stockman, who listened to only one kind of music, and that's the blowing of their own horn. They're the ones who, when in conversation with others, others will stop talking about themselves only long enough to say, enough about me. Let's hear from you. What do you think about me? And they're the ones who everyone steers clear of because, quite honestly, they're insufferable bores who make life miserable for those around them. Am I right? I hope I'm not being too harsh to self-centered people. Humble people, on the other hand, those who are God-filled and God-centered as opposed to self-filled and self-centered make life better for those around them. They're the ones who outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10. They are the ones who bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4, 2, and they're the ones who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5, 21. Humble, self-renouncing people who are those who see life not as a mirror in which they continuously see themselves, but rather as a window through which they're constantly looking for opportunities to help and to encourage and to bless others. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are a true blessing to those around them, and that brings them great joy because it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Let's consider lastly and most importantly how abdicating the throne for the cross positively impacts our position before God. There is nothing more fatal than the self-important assumption that we can somehow win acceptance with God, that we can somehow work our way to heaven. Those who believe they can and who think they're the masters of their fate or the captains of their soul are headed for destruction. And that's because God's word says very, very clearly that if we want the ultimate blessedness that comes from being right with God, and I'm talking about salvation here, we have to get pneuma, self, out of the way. We have to push down our pride and be willing to admit that we cannot get saved on our own. We need to understand, as German theologian Paul Tillich put it, that we are, and I'm quoting now, estranged from God and that our only help lies in God's willingness to accept the unacceptable. And might I add this, on the basis of the blood of Christ. In other words, we need to understand that it is by grace and grace alone that we're saved. You cannot read Ephesians chapter 2 and come away with anything other than that. It is by grace and grace alone that we're saved. So to be poor in spirit in this regard, to use the words of another theologian by the name of D.A. Carson, is to, and I'm quoting, confess one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him, end quote. While visiting the famous statue of Christ at the Church of Our Lady in Copenhagen, Denmark, a tourist asked his guide why the artist depicted Christ with his head bent forward and looking in a downward position. And this is the answer that the guide gave that tourist. So that you, you have to get on your knees if you want to see his face. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have humbly and repentantly dropped to their knees, and they have seen the saving face of Christ. I think we have a good enough understanding, don't you, of what this beatitude is saying? So let's see if we can plug it into our lives. To that end, let me ask a question. It's rhetorical, of course. Are you poor in spirit, first and foremost, in your position before God? Have you confessed your unworthiness to him and your utter dependence upon Christ and only upon Christ for your salvation? Are you on your knees looking up at the saving face of Christ, or are you trying to see and know God from some other vantage point? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that means there is no other vantage point from which to see and know God. This is a critical question to answer with confidence. Yes, I am poor in spirit in my position before God. I have repented of my sin. I have put my trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. Yes. If you can't answer that question with confidence, please talk with someone whom you know has. Please talk to someone whom you know is a true believer and ask him or her what it is you need to do in order to be poor in spirit, what you need to do to truly be saved. That's a critical first and foremost question, but I have another one. 
are you who are confident that you're poor in spirit in your position before God, also poor in spirit in the way you see yourselves and in the way you live your life before others? Have you been released from the bondage and the misery of self-centeredness and self-servitude, or is this something that you are still struggling with? Are you a blessing to those around you, or do you tend to be an insufferable bore? Like anyone's going to admit to that, right? If these are things that you struggle with, God wants to help you, and he can help you. All you have to do is ask him to. Ask him to release you from your fixation upon yourself and then to indwell you completely and to rule in you absolutely so that you can experience makarios, the blessedness that we're talking about, so that you can be deeply and richly happy and peaceful and contented at that. It is well with my soul level. That will never, ever happen if your focus remains on yourself. You'll miss out on that tremendous blessing. There's no more critical time, in my opinion, to be poor in spirit than right now as we navigate through the COVID-19 pandemic and through all the civil unrest taking place in our state and across our nation. This is a time more than any other that we as Christians Listen carefully. We as Christians must view ourselves first and foremost not as Americans, not as white or black or any other color or ethnicity, and not as Democrat or Republican, but as followers and ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then to act accordingly by instructions given by Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, valuing others above ourselves, not looking only to our interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what we are to do as Christians. How that will play out will vary from person to person. Perhaps it will impact how we share our views about the pandemic and all that goes into that and or about the civil unrest we're experiencing or maybe more telling how we disagree with those who don't share our views. Maybe valuing others above ourselves will cause us to initiate a selfless action that will benefit someone who's struggling with COVID or with the quarantine requirements associated with COVID or possibly will have an effect on our poor attitude toward those who insist on wearing the mask, or, or who refuse to wear the mask. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, those who are empty of self, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones because self is out of the way whom God can indwell completely and whom he can rule absolutely. And my friends, it just doesn't get any better than that. Worship team, come on back up. I'm going to pray with us, and then we're going to have communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this very rich beatitude. Father, so we come to you after hearing what Jesus had to say about the first attitude that we need to be living out and growing in and thus experiencing your blessing as a result is that of humility. But we can't do that on ourselves. We can't necessarily will ourselves to be more humble. We need your help. So I would ask that you would do just that. Come and fill us. Come and 
strengthen us. Give us the ability, give us the strength that we need to walk humbly with you. To have that position before you, first of all. But then to have a right perspective about us, about self, and to have a right perspective about others. A humble posture before others. God, let this message sink into every fiber of our being that it might change us, it might cause us pause in the way that we deal with those around us, the way we think of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.